Hey folks, I'm so happy to see you. Today, we will be dismantling the romanticism of Amish and plain folks in TV shows, movies, books, and media. So, grab your hats and bonnets, hold your bucky seats, make sure your horses are well watered, make sure you have plenty of water to drink, and don't be surprised if you feel the need to have a brandy old-fashioned after this. It's time to giddy up and go. Let's start this show. So today, I have the privilege of being here with my fellow disobedient woman, Stephanie Crandall, who is ex-Mennonite Church USA, and we are a little teeny bit disobedient, and I want to tell you why. Um, first off, we're actually going to watch my last live stream and talk about it from Stephanie's perspective rather than just from my perspective and because I wasn't Mennonite, Stephanie was. So hi, Stephanie. Hi, Mary. <laughs> good to see you. It's good to be here. So would you like to tell folks a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am the executive director of Into Account, which is a survivor advocacy organization that works with survivors from all kinds of different Christian settings. Um, we are not a faith-based organization, but we do specialize in helping Christian survivors um, because one of the needs that we spotted was the need for, for secular, not church-based services for survivors that still have some sensitivity to what uh, people traumatized in Christian settings are going through. So um, we, I have a PhD in American studies from University of Kansas, and um, my focus is on gender-based violence and um, LGBT justice, and uh, also institutional, the patterns of violence that manifest in institutions. So um, also in terms of my Mennonite background, I grew up in South Central Kansas, so my background is um, Swiss Bohemian Mennonite. Uh, you can Google that if you want, but it's not that interesting. And um, I went to <laughs> I went to Bethel College, which is a um, Mennonite Church USA affiliated institution, although it's also independent. Um, and grew up in North Newton, Kansas, where Bethel is located. So I've been steeped in a particular kind of Mennonite um culture for or or was for basically all of my childhood and early adulthood um and now i live in lawrence kansas and direct into account thank you so much because that's really important to talk about like your education and where you got your education so people know like you actually studied this and then talking about what you guys do at into account one of the big things about into account guys listen i went to their website because somebody told me the name stephanie crable 
And so then I went and Googled Stephanie Crable and I found her website. So I go to her website and what I see is that they are obviously like queer supporting their LGBTQ friendly. And that is imperative. You have to have that when you're talking about sexual assault survivors inappropriately supporting them. But that's a conversation for another day, right? Which we should have for sure. Yes, we should have. Um, should we should we start talking about my last live stream? Because we're gonna yes, watch it, do. right? Let's do. Do I first have to like let's let's have a drink first? <laughs> to disobedience. <laughs> All righty then. So as some of you may have noticed, there was this live stream. We're at about one minute and 43 seconds in. I don't think we need to restart it. I think we can just start right here. She was and how long ago and those types of things. Sure. Uh, I was born in Oklahoma. My father has uh, Kansas and Oklahoma roots. My mother was reared in Hutchinson, Kansas. And uh, I was born in northeastern Oklahoma in a uh, Amish community that no longer exists. Um, we, I was born in the, the tail end of the depression, years of drought and hard times. And so we moved to eastern Kansas as a family and then to Virginia when I was six years old. And there, the Amish community we became a part of in Augusta County in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia uh, was uh, a fairly new community uh, made up of Amish families from all over the East Coast. Um, and it was uh, somewhat unique in that they allowed for modern farm equipment and we also had a meeting house uh, and had uh, church services every other week and had Sunday school where we simply studied the German Bible, uh, the alternate weeks. So that was a setting I grew up in and was in until, um, well, at 15, uh, the church went through a division which uh, led to the formation of a beachy Amish group, which my parents and I joined at age 15, uh, which allowed for cars, black cars, not black bumper cars, but black cars. No, but black cars. You have black to be distinctive cars. about this. <laughs> and, and telephones. But uh, oh boy, up until then, I you washed whole horse and buggy transportation. Uh, no phones. Of course, we had no radio or television. At 21, when I could leave home, I did, not because I was, uh, you know, necessarily rebellious and wanted to uh, get away from my community as soon as I could, but I was interested in attending Eastern Mennonite College. I had a Mennonite pastor who was also a school teacher, my seventh grade teacher, uh, we had, we attended a, a
So he's not rebellious, right? But according to him, he's not rebellious. But what would the church say about that? Well, you're the one who grew up Amish. <laughs> I mean, it, it seems like... Uh, how I mean, is that not rebellious? How, I, I don't get it. How's, how is that not rebellious? It's like, why, why distance yourself from rebellion? <laughs> I, I mean, like, if you leave the church to go get an education, whether you realize it or not, you're still being rebellious. You can, mm -hmm. like, that, according to the definition of rebellious and what the churches define as rebellious, it's my opinion that that would be rebellious. So I, I just wondered if the Mennonite church viewed that, like, similar or... No, it's it's funny, like Mennonite Church USA and like the the denominations that formed Mennonite Church USA, because it's it's actually a relatively young denomination that was formed officially in 2000, 2001. Um, and the, the denominations that formed it were, you know, the Mennonite Church, which is covered, you know, Eastern and Eastern Central United States mostly. And then... Um, the General Conference Mennonite Church, which is what I grew up in, uh, which covered um, Midwest um, and parts of Canada and and you know yeah. west of, west of the Rockies. Anyway, it's a very different relationship with education than than plain and Amish Mennonites. Um, or like, I'm just, in, whatever, I'm not using the correct terminology, but it's a very different approach to education than the Amish, certainly into most sectarian Anabaptists, which is like, there's a great deal of value put on education. Um, and there are lots of Men Mennonite institutions of higher education. Um, you know, I grew up in the backyard of one of them. Certainly, there are a lot of critiques that you can level. They, they, they um they foster their own their own cultures of insularity and i don't you know i don't think I, I think in a lot of ways um people who stay in their orbit for you know their whole lives um can have certain you know i mean there's certain things that that are limiting about mm -hmm getting educations from those institutions. But that is one really, really big difference between the kind of Mennonite that I grew up with. Right. And, um, you know, and, and frankly, it's also a generational difference because I mean, like, for instance, my, like we, if you could look at like one side of my family as an example, you know, my, my grandparents on my paternal grandparents both had eighth grade educations. Um, their lives in a lot of ways are completely foreign to me. My dad has a PhD and I have a PhD. And that's not that, I mean, on one, one of my Mennonite sides of the family, like four out of seven grandkids have doctorates. Um, there's actually a lot of value placed on education, but again, there's still <laughs> the value I, th I feel the most value when the education that you got um, is something that Mennonites can claim ownership of. 
it's it's very much uh oh well if you make us look good <laughs> we'll be happy to brag about that phd that you have um i have a phd and i don't make mennonites look very good so um i i don't provide a whole lot of credit i whatever <laughs> i mean it's, it's just it you you kind of get <sighs> Yeah, I don't mean to in any way trivialize the difference in the valuing of education between like, like, you know, Mennonite Church USA Mennonites and um, the kind of sectarian Anabaptism that you grew up with to paint with a really, really right. broad brush. But nonetheless, like, there is there is insularity and culty sectarianism in these Mennonite educational institutions. That is a big deal and needs to be talked about on its own terms. And like, just to get a really like quick tangent, I often <laughs> see um, people who come from really conservative Mennonite or Amish background um, who leave those backgrounds and come into more mainstream, if you will, Mennonite higher education. Um, they have a like, they have a really complicated relationship, I think, with um, mainstream Mennonites because they're, they, they can kind of capitalize on the romanticism that happens. Um, they're, on the one hand, mainstream Mennonites, I'm just going to use that as shorthand for Mennonite Church USA, mainstream and like, like, yeah. I don't know, every, every word that I could use to describe this is, is problematic and binary based. But um, there's, on the one hand, mainstream Mennonites really want to think of themselves as better and more educated than um, sectarian Anabaptists, conservative Anabaptists. On the other hand, there's a sense that conservative Anabaptists are some sort of pure source of Anabaptism. And like mainstream Mennonites often participate in the romanticizing and the marketing <laughs> even of that image. So um I think it's right for people like you to be really, really pissed off about it. Um, yeah, it's I'm, not, it's I'm not amplifying your voice. I'm, I'm actually quite angry and tired. I am so tired of the Mennonites who sit there and speak for the Amish, like as if they were Amish. Shut up, y'all don't yeah. know what you're talking about. Yeah. And lastly, you didn't live it. You have no idea what you're talking about in the first place, and then you do this bull crap research that is <clears throat> let's not even talk about how ethical it is let's just say there's a research study out there about me that oh. is very inaccurate yeah. very inaccurate like yeah. let me just put that out there there are some good points to it but it's very very inaccurate and it completely dismisses the struggle of my life after having been shunned because I reported child sexual abuse but it's again mainstream Mennonites who are profiting and benefit benefiting from using Amish branding to further their agenda yeah all right that's a topic for a whole other story we should go back to watching <laughs> this video all right Harvey let's hear what you got <laughs> need to think about college and uh, so partly through his influence I came to EMC, then uh, now it's Eastern Mennonite University. Uh, and there I met my wife, came a Mennonite, and then a Mennonite pastor taught at a local Mennonite high school here, Eastern Mennonite High School. And then uh, 33 years ago, um, made a career switch 
to uh, being pastor of a house church congregation and full-time uh, counselor at Family Life Resource Center, which is a Virginia Mennonite Conference agency. Probably a longer introduction than you need, but that's... Oh, what... no, that's very interesting. And I actually have some questions about that. So, like, you made a career switch. So, and, and, and I want to comment on this, too, is I've... You know, it's interesting how in order for you to have any kind of education outside of the standard, what is accepted within your Amish community, even though your community was driving cars and using modern farm equipment and using telephones, you still, there was no space for you to go to college. There were very few Amish. Uh, that went to college with any kind of support from their Amish communities. I did know a few, uh, mm -hmm. and they were from the Midwest, uh, where they were at least tolerated as long as they maintained their Amish dress style and so on while they were away from, and, mm -hmm. and it was primarily for like preparation for teaching. Uh, but that's pretty rare. Uh, most it's of, very rare. All of my school teachers. Yep. Mm -hmm. So when you made the career choice, did you go to school to become a licensed counselor? No, I actually went to school to become a teacher. Uh, and I did teach. Uh, I was dual career. I taught at Eastern Mennonite High School halftime and was pastor at Zion Mennonite Church halftime over 20 year uh, span of time. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, increasingly, uh, the church took more of my time and the teaching took less. And then 33 years ago, uh, we uh, changed from being uh, no longer taught, but I became a full-time counselor. I worked on my master's degree here at a local university in the meantime, and have gotten the uh, education I needed to become a licensed counselor. And so that's what I've been doing full-time, but the house church pastor role is just part-time and it's uh, non-salary. Correct. Yeah, thank you for explaining that because for most Amish communities, um, when they say counseling is provided by somebody, it's not necessarily somebody that goes to college and actually, or goes to a university and actually has an education in how to appropriately assist people that are in need of mental health support, such as, such as through a counselor. And that's a very important thing. Um, the unlicensed counselors, unfortunately, I feel often do more harm than good because they don't know any better. Mm -hmm. They can have the best of intentions but it can cause extreme spiritual harm towards people. I, I think the right combination, in my view, is for there to be a lot of what I consider first aid kind of caregiving, uh, where mm -hmm. people uh, access uh, people in their extended families, people in their congregational families, but that all of those people realize that first aid is extremely important. We all rely on it all the time. We don't go to a doctor every time we have a, you know, a need a Band-Aid or something. Right. Or an aspirin. Uh, right. So 
what uh, lay caregivers need to recognize is when, just like any first aid provider, when do I call 911 and get some professional help for this person who is uh, suffering from whatever, mm -hmm. accident or illness or whatever, and the same with mental illness, that uh, we recognize our boundaries. And uh, <clears throat> again, I, I think first aid is fine as long as we recognize it as such. Uh, yeah. Well, when you start talking about it, so I became a certified life coach. And oh, yes. part of that is, part of that is, is we do what we do, but we work within those realms. There's a certain line that we cross. And one of the things that I tell my clients is this. <clears throat> I think that it could be very helpful for you to seek out a trauma-informed counselor mm -hmm. when I have a client that discloses trauma to me because it is not my lane to be providing counseling for trauma. Mm -hmm. I am not qualified. I will not do it. I will not pretend to do it. I will support you as a person. I will provide all the support that I can, like you're saying, first aid. But mm -hmm. I am not a counselor. I am not a trauma counselor, and I will not do it. Yeah, that's uh, that's good, and I I even encourage people to uh, like persons like yourself who become engaged with someone in experiencing trauma, uh, and your support is vital. It's it's mm -hmm. extremely vital. It's not an either or. I encourage uh, clients to stay in touch with their pastors, with their friends, with their life coaches and so on. And that somehow, you know, sign a release if needed, and that we are able to help each other and work collaboratively in whatever way is possible. It takes a whole village to raise a child. It takes a whole village to raise uh, good, healthy human beings. And we all need to work together, each with our particular gifts and with our particular set of uh, qualifications. Whatever. Well, and you know, like one of the things that often happens is like let's let's get into the nitty gritty of some of the culture um, is when there's a case of reported child sexual abuse mm -hmm. inside of an Amish community. Um, it often happens that the person, if it's a child reporting it, that child often pays for that dearly. Mm -hmm. And it's very tragic and sad, and it also, it, it's harmful. I would say that the people that I went to for assistance and their response, even though they were good Amish people and maybe they did want to help, at the end of the day, that response was almost as harmful as the actual child sexual okay. abuse. And part of the reason I say that is because some of it was very spiritual as in like, it's your fault that you were sexually assaulted because you didn't pray hard enough. What do you say to that? Well, it's, uh, it's obviously uh, just a, a gross misrepresentation of reality. Um, when you think about the power difference between a child or even a teenager and a full-grown adult who should know better, uh, 
and to recognize that uh, it is never the victim's fault uh, that uh, someone chooses to abuse or rape another individual. It's just, um, and I, I understand, you know, family systems and congregational family systems tend to want to guard their reputations and to uh, try to keep things uh, from becoming public knowledge uh, because it is a disgrace, it's shameful, whatever. But that kind of secrecy just aids and uh, enables this kind of abuse to continue on in any community, Amish or otherwise. Correct. It doesn't matter what community it is. Also, we have some listeners who said hello. Hello, everybody. I'm so happy you're here. And it is never the victim's fault. Amen. Right. Right. It really is never the victim's fault. And that's something that people need to understand, the lay people that are the support system for these victims within Amish communities. I feel like if if within Amish communities, people would understand that better, the people who are coming in contact with the victims of child sexual assault would do a much better job of supporting those victims. Mm -hmm. And I also think that if you start looking into like what happens is a lot of times trauma and repeated trauma, so repetitive trauma. Okay. You got comments, Stephanie? Yeah. <laughs> well, my cat does too. I mean, <laughs> what does your kitty have to say today? Uh, well, now she's See, this is why I gave you a picture with the cat's tail in my face, because I knew it was going to be representative of how this was actually going to go down. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I just, I kind of, okay, and now she's going to jump on my shoulders, and that's going to be a thing. I'm sorry. No. No. Um, I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, he just said, you know, it's terrible for to blame Victor. Yeah. I mean, that's good. I, I would I would hope that's the bare minimum of what what you would say. What what I want to go back to is like I mean, as he was talking about his his education and his background and like his response to you talking about um, you know being being a life coach, like I don't get the feeling that this is somebody that I would trust to go to with a story of vulnerability because because you know first of all he's talking he's talking about victims with this sort of assumption that they're all children for one thing and you know many victims coming like many obviously we're talking about lots of people who are victimized as children but there's you know it, that immediate framing of you know well obviously sometimes we have to call 911 for the person who is, who who really needs more intervention, and I I want to I just want to ask like how about the person who is a a in, well informed adult and makes a decision to to go to therapy on their own, yeah you know like, and it's it's not that there's any shame in not being that person. It's not that there's any shame inherent in being somebody who, you know, 
is suffering so much that like your friends and family and like the trusted people around you have to say, you know, you need more help than you're getting. There's no shame in that. But, you know, what I often see with Christian counselors, you know, working as an advocate and talking to lots of people who have been through, you know, that kind of therapy, whether it's, you know, whether they've gotten like decent education or not, there is this person, there, there's a paternalism that comes with it that this dude has oozing out of his pores, frankly. I, <laughs> you know, it's a, uh, well. I mean, can I ask a question? Yes. So, so there's a point where he says something about it's a shameful thing or something. Um, did Mennonites use shame or with it like as a way of silencing victims or have you seen that in any other religion? Because that's like immediately the first thing that comes to mind. Like he says that and it's like mentally I check out because he used that word that, that it's a shameful thing. And because it's so like, you should be ashamed of yourself because you incited somebody to sexually assault you as a child. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think Mennonites don't have a, a corner on on Mennonites and, and Amish and Anabaptists in general don't have any sort of um, corner on using shame to silence victims. But, you know, <laughs> I work. I mean, they we, we live in a shame saturated culture. People have lots and lots of shame in general. We are as a culture. And when I say as a culture, I'm not talking about Mennonites. I'm not talking about Amish. I'm talking about like, just broadly speaking, US society, which Amish people are not separate from even if they have constructs that tell them that they are. Um, Like, this is this is a feature. I think that that um, the forms of Christianity that are dominant in the United States has really, <laughs> really cultivated, which is the idea that like, you're, you're shit. Okay. As a person, you're shit. You were born shit. You are shit. You like take one step out of line and um, you have things to be ashamed of. And it's one of the reasons because shame is so triggering. It's one of the reasons like get into account when we talk about accountability for perpetrators, we don't talk about shame. We don't talk about, well, you should be ashamed. Like, like maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't. I just don't, I don't choose that language. We, we go with, okay, you have abused, you, you have a level of authority, access, and or regard within your community <laughs> that has allowed you to perpetrate sexual abuse against people over whom you had power. Um, we're going to take away that authority, access, and regard. And that's, you know, that is how uh, people will be protected from you. Yep. And yeah, I mean, the, I think that this incredibly binary way of understanding the world and like, I, I didn't um, get a good look at that comment, but something about, yeah, the world is bad and evil and we are not the world, the world is evil. Education is evil. That, that is it's not, um, <laughs> that's an incredibly common sentiment for sectarian uh, religious groups in general. Yep. 
And go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I would absolutely have to agree with it. I think it's part of like what what you find out when you start studying different types of religions. Mm -hmm. If you open yourself up and you receive this information about them, what you often people will find is that a lot of the religions, they practice the same things. They have the same, basically same core principles with just a little bit of variances among, and nuances among their theology and how they practice. Yeah, well, particularly when you're talking about, you know, monothe monotheistic religions, I, you know, I, I just, I, I won't generalize beyond that just because I, you yeah. know, expertise is lacking, but um, it's like <laughs> the, the attitude, well, okay, and here's something else specific, and I, um, Irene, I am seeing your question. That's definitely something we can talk about. Um, one of the things that I want to get back to with what Harvey was saying is he's talking about working for a counseling center that is affiliated with Eastern Mennonite Conference. Did I did I hear that correctly? Um, Eastern Mennonite. I know he was talking or, about. Sorry, Virginia, yeah. Virginia Mennonite Conference. Yes, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I realize that, like, in the the world of sectarian and, um, I'm just going to keep saying sectarian and a Baptist to differentiate between, you know, plain plain people and mainstream Mennonite Church USA Mennonites. But like, Virginia Mennonite Conference, like, I I I mean, I have worked with lots of survivors from the Shenandoah Valley area who are coming from Eastern Mennonite University, from Eastern Mennonite High School, and under the auspices, under the umbrella of Virginia Mennonite Conference. And like anything affiliated with that conference is not like, like that, that is not an endorsement for survivor-centered anything. Like, like I would not, I would not view that as, um, as counseling that's getting you outside of the system that traumatized you if you are a Mennonite survivor. Um, my experience with Virginia Mennonite Conference is um, that they engage in cover-up. Um, my experience with Eastern Mennonite University, where um, Harvey got his education, is that they have enabled lots and lots of abusers and never taken adequate public accountability for it. They're very good at cover-up, and they have communities that allow them to do it. That is so, absolutely terrible. Um, I like those are not credentials. Like you know, I mean, I don't know a whole lot about his personal counseling practice, but like, don't don't hear those credentials and think, oh wow, he's really educated and he's like, you know, he's still within a system that has covered up an awful lot of abuse. I would urge you to be wary and kind of like the thing I've talked about this a few times is that when you go find a counselor, you have to find a counselor that you feel safe with. And that doesn't just mean that you go find a counselor that belongs to your church or is like a specific religion or whatever. What that means is you go find a counselor that you actually have them like answer your questions about counseling and provide information. And when they're able to do that in a way that makes you feel safe, then you are able to build a relationship with that counselor and actually process your trauma with them. 
Because in order for you to process trauma, you have to be able to be safe to process trauma with that person that's helping you. Yeah. Um, And then somebody said that some of this is Reformation theology, Protestant, Protestant theology. I'm not too familiar with Protestant theology. Are you familiar with it? I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend to be any sort of theology expert. I'm really good at identifying bad theology when I see it. Um, You know, he says his license is at state certified or Christian church certificate. I, I would imagine that from Eastern Mennonite university, he can, he can get licensed by the state. They have an accredited social work program. Um, and <laughs> I mean, yeah. if I don't know if he, I don't know if he got his master's, he didn't say what his master's is in. Um, I mean, he, you could be a Christian counselor with any number of master's degrees. It wouldn't, it could be clinical psychology. It could be social work. It could be, um, something more explicitly religious, like, yeah, even. Yeah. 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 It's, I mean, they're like, just <laughs> credentials don't really, I mean, you want to look for credentials, but credentials don't assure you of safety. Correct. And that's why, you know, for me, I, I have personally had enough experiences with um, different counselors that for me, I have a whole process of finding a new counselor, which you can watch over in my How I Find a Therapist video. Yeah. Um, Irene says, do you see a difference between male and female counselors? Do you see a difference? I mean, as, as a, um, a client, I've only ever gone to women counselors. Um, I would say like, I've heard plenty of horror stories about women counselors and I've heard plenty of stories about, um, you know, male counselors who have done a fine job and been very trauma informed. So I think, I think that survivors should feel like, feel okay with choosing. Like if, if you can't imagine feeling comfortable with a counselor of the opposite gender, don't go to one. Don't try to make yourself like, like say, okay, I am, you know, if you're a person of color, you're like, I don't want to go, like, I need a black therapist, say, choose a black therapist. Don't try to make yourself go to somebody who occupies a, you know, a subject position that you just don't like, that you're going to have a considerable barrier even feeling safe. Right. If you're a queer person and you're like, I'm not going to feel safe unless I have an LGBT counselor, honor that. Like, like choose, begin with, I'm going to choose from the demographic that I'm actually comfortable with. And, you know, if, if that isn't crystal clear for you and you feel like you would be open, then, then yeah, like consider, consider men and women and, you know, what, whatever, you know, whatever diversity is available to you in terms of counselors. But the most, the most important thing is that you feel safe. Mm -hmm. And so you start with like, if you're like, I, I, I mean, that's, that's me. I, I was like, I'm definitely not going to feel as safe with a man as a counselor. So I'm just not going to go to one. Yeah. That's like, counseling is not there for you to like, <laughs> there are no shoulds there. Other I than, 
counselors should not abuse their power or blame victims. I mean, that's kind of. Um, yeah. So interestingly enough, I've had both male and female counselors. And a really interesting thing is I actually had a woman counselor who is absolutely educated, etc. tell me that I'm only gay because um, I was I have mother issues. I, I just, nobody has time for that. You deserve a counselor who is going to be a lot less, yeah. But anyways, should we go back to uh, watching this? Yes, let's do. As a child, it can actually, what my therapist told me is that it can actually re, re sync the brain so that now you have like completely different pathways in your brain. And that's what causes the PTSD. PTSD is not something that is a demon inside of you. You cannot cast out the demon. That doesn't work. You can't just pray it away. It doesn't just go away. It takes a lot of hard work to work through and heal with PTSD. And continued dedication and commitment to self-care and making sure that you are doing the right things for you in your journey. Sure. And of course, with support, like appropriate support. And ultimately, it's the right thing for the offender, too. Uh, you know, exposure can be a form of tough love for the person who has done the abusing, the raping, whatever, that they acknowledge fully and take responsibility fully. That's the only path for their healing, for their dealing with the demons. Let me just ask this real quick. So how did we go from talking about appropriate support and therapy and counseling for the victims that are survivors of trauma to all of a sudden we're talking about it's the right thing for abusers? Where did that mental leap happen? I, uh, I don't know. I, I was I was like, wait, but weren't we actually talking? <laughs> I'm no, that was not cool. Okay, and and then um, how? But is this normal for them to do do things like that? Like when they they become uncomfortable with the topic and they don't want to address like the fact that you brought this to the table, then they completely switch gears. They meaning um, anybody, people, just people. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, I mean, if I, if I didn't know a, a, a little bit more about what is to come, I might be like, okay, dude, that was weird, but let's see what comes next. Knowing like, I, I mean, I haven't watched it <laughs> completely, but my sense here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> My <laughs> sense here is he's got an agenda for talking about offenders. And like, I want, like, this is the point where I just, I want to sit down with him and be like, why did you want to do this? Why are you on here? What is your goal? Because if you're, if the goal is to talk about um, the bad ways in which the Amish respond to sexual abuse, like you've made it really abundantly clear in your public materials and 
everywhere that you have a public presence that one of your primary critiques of the Amish response is that survivors, you know, that it completely marginalizes survivors, demonizes survivors, you know, there's no room for survivors in it. What, what is this? I mean, I, I want to hear what else he's going to say. Okay. But I, that was not appropriate. That's not an, I mean, it's not, at the very least, it's not a trauma-informed way of communicating about what survivors need. You don't go straight, it, it reminds me of like those Amish abuse awareness, ad, you know, uh, healing for the victim, hope, or hope for the victim, healing for the perpetrator. Like, it is incredibly traumatic to always ha have your perpetrators mentioned in the same breath as people needing the uh, loving attention of the community. Um, I like, I don't feel like I should have to explain that to somebody who is supposedly a licensed counselor. But anyway. Uh, All right. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Whatever you want to call them in them that uh, cause them to behave in such a shameful way. So it's not as though um, I, I, I course in my in my work i am all about confidentiality but there is such a important distinction to be made between confidentiality and secrecy mm -hmm. uh, confidentiality is always uh, to give the person who's confiding in you the right to do that confiding without uh, without my gossiping about it to anyone else, but always with the understanding that if they confide something in me that is life-threatening, as in threatened suicide, threatened homicide, or whatever, or if they confide in me that they are the victim of an abuser, then I am obligated to break that confidentiality and not keep it a secret because you're a mandated reporter yes exactly and it is mandated that when somebody when you a mandated reporter hears of crimes that are happening such yeah. as child sexual assault murder threats mm -hmm. abuse of any sorts they're mandated to report it otherwise you could get in trouble Unfortunately, uh, in the state of Virginia, at least, I don't know how it is in your state, um, pastors, priests, rabbis are not mandated reporters. Uh, and that goes back a long way to the, the whole idea of the confessional and people needing to be able to make their confession to their priest or whoever uh, without uh, risking, you know, becoming um, apprehended for a crime. Well, and let's also put this out there. There's always um, moral reporting as well. Sure. Uh, anybody can report a crime mm -hmm. if they feel morally obligated to. And sure. 
part of why I say that is because <clears throat> when you start talking about the moral reporting, um, sometimes offenders go to pastors and ministers and deacons and bishops, and they will report their crime that they committed, let's call it what it is, as a sin. They will report their crime as a sin. And the ministry will not report it, even though by continuing to have that perpetrator in the community without reporting it, without mm -hmm. holding him accountable, how many children are in that church that are being placed at risk? Mm -hmm. Sure. That's what I would like to know. Mm -hmm. How how can you sleep with yourself if you know this about a member of the congregation and you know that this is what they're doing and you continue to give them space to walk around to acquire more victims mm -hmm. inside of your congregation? Exactly. Huh. Can you read that? He says, uh, my offender was a church, was a church elder. elder. Wow. Wow. And that is such a, That's, especially if it's an elder, a priest, or rabbi, or whatever that you really respect, look up to, and see as a person representing God, uh, how can that person be uh, seen as an offender and uh, how can you resist how can you say no uh, especially when that person maybe in many ways has been kind to you and uh, you've learned to look up to him or her uh, mm -hmm. but uh, that is such a double shame when the offender is someone in position of responsibility in the congregation responsibility, authority, their yeah. position of power. They're mm -hmm. teaching you how to be a person. They're supposed to be a leader for you. Exactly. That's a betrayal on all levels. Mm -hmm. And then another question I had for you is like, because you went to EMU and we had talked about this. Oh my God. I couldn't say no. Also a relative. Mm -hmm. Also, that yeah, is so no. terrible. Mm -hmm. I am so sorry. Sure. That is just awful. And then yeah. another thing, huh? Go ahead. No, go ahead. Another thing, I was about to change topics a little yeah. bit because okay. one of the things that I've wanted to ask church leaders is this. Like, you know, have you ever seen any studies done um like research studies, like actual academic research studies on the rates of child sexual abuse inside of Anabaptist churches, or even just inside churches, period. There, there's a profound <clears throat> lack of, of uh, good research. Um, and some research needs to be done about what uh, has been done to try to uncover, to learn more about incidents, uh, the rate of uh, offense, whatever, and also uh, just uh, how, have, how has this been done, if it's been done, whatever. I do know of one study that was done by two of my colleagues at Eastern Mennonite University, 
1994, I believe it was. Yeah. Now that study was done with first year students at EMU. You have a comment, Stephanie? What? Okay, the idea that there isn't any empirical evidence about sexual abuse in churches, and it he's he's gonna go right ahead and cite a 1994 study done by some of his colleagues at Eastern Mennonite University of no, there is plenty of research here. Like he's he is capitalizing on the fact that he doesn't. He, he doesn't think you know this. There's plenty of research showing that there's like perpetrators more than the general population identify as religious, that there is, that church leadership is a profession with a high concentration of perpetrators. <laughs> like, like he has no excuse not to know these things, period. Okay. Um. I believe I might be about to show him some some evidence to the contrary. But I, yeah. Let's watch. It was EMC then, and Goshen College and Heston College, the three sister Mennonite colleges. Now that particular study, if it if the results are valid, and all I know is uh, I, I feel like the uh, methodology they used was valid. All the results were confidential and there was no way to trace, uh, you know, who said mm -hmm. what about whom. Uh, that showed very little uh, sexual abuse on the part of family members or church family members in general. It did show more than expected, in my mind anyway. Uh, there were a number of cases of, of young women who reported that in their vulnerable adolescent stage of life, uh, say pre-16 or around 16 or whatever, that older friends of the family, older friends of their brothers in some cases, uh, violated them. And so there was a disturbing number of cases of that kind. Uh, but, you know, uh, all the questions need to be asked. Did the respondents respond accurately? Was there a large enough sample? Mm -hmm. That's another important question. And was it a truly random sample? And mm -hmm. in this particular case, they tried hard to get a large number, as many as possible, and to have the uh, respondents be uh, selected as randomly as possible. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure whether, you know, first year students at a Christian university or college, uh, whether that represents a uh, the right kind of sample of people either. Uh, I, I just don't know. So uh, this is, 
interesting as many, many of the clients I relate to were abused by family members, although some were definitely molested by others outside of the family. Yes. Yes. And uh, uh, the, the, what this showed was that of family members, the primary, uh, the primary offenders were older brothers and then like cousins and, you know, like friends of, of the family. Um, so family members were definitely involved in, in many cases, but um, mm -hmm. uh, at the time I was, I was heartened and I hope, I hope the results were accurate. I was heartened yeah. by the fact that no fathers or grandfathers were named in this particular study of these three uh, universities. Is you got that study published anywhere? It was not published. Uh, I can get you the names of the people who who did the study and who could give you the data. I was looking for, we just moved uh, a couple of months mm -hmm. ago and I was looking in vain for the, my oh own folder that I have somewhere in some box somewhere. Somewhere, right? I not actually uncovered, but anyway, the data is, is out there. Right. And then, like, another thing is, is what about the rates of recidivism? You know what recidivism is, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So I actually had a um, professor who actually wrote an article where she examines all of this, um, all, all of these research articles about the rates of recidivism. Would you like to discuss that a little bit? Have you had a chance to read that? Uh, well, I, I don't know exactly what you've read, but uh, I do know that with sex offenders, uh, the likelihood of someone committing an offense at some point in their life, even though they might thoroughly repent, uh, acknowledge their wrong, uh, you know, make whatever restitution possible, that the possibility of uh, reoffending never completely goes away. You know, maybe when they become geriatric <laughs> somewhere. Well, then even then, I've worked in a nursing even home then, before. Yes, I'm telling you, nope, nope, exactly. doesn't go away. Um, so, uh, I, I just think uh, it's the kind of thing where we have to practice a great deal more diligence in terms of providing accountability. Obviously, unless we, you know, uh, put these, you know, have these people serve life sentences and be locked away, or if we, uh, if, you know, they, if we uh, have them experience the death penalty or something they're going to be around somewhere they've got to be they've got to have the kind of accountability that an oversight that is rigorous for their own good as well as the good of the community and, and it's not unlike children. it's not unlike uh an addiction like uh, you know drug addiction or something or alcohol, and as you know, that uh, one of the first things that 
is said in every AA meeting by every attender, my name is Harvey Yoder and I'm an alcoholic. You know, just recognize that even though I might have been sober for 10 years, I recognize that I am vulnerable to reoffend and I need the support and accountability provided by, you know, open kind of connections with. It's just, okay. So first of all, the whole, like, talking at length about this unpublished 1994 study done by Mennonite first year students is just muddying the waters. He's rambling on and on and on about that. That is not a peer reviewed study. Um, he was heartened that people didn't, like what? No, <laughs> like there is a whole body of literature that he could discuss and he's pretending it doesn't exist. So there's that. Also comparing sexual abuse to addiction, I am so like, I'm not saying that addictive behavior behaviors can't go hand in hand with abuse sometimes, but we have to stop conflating that. We have to stop, like that is a very popular interpretation of why sexual abuse happens among among church leadership across denominations across different sectarian groups it's appealing because you can then address the offender as a suffering sick person who needs to be treated like a suffering sick person and then you don't have to address the power you know, the potential for abuse of power, the, you know, the kinds of social arrangements that can lead people to fetishize domination. You don't have to address those things. If it's all about, oh, the sick offender who needs, like, who needs to be treated like an addict, you need to address abuse of power and what makes this particular kind of abuse of power so pathologically frequent in particular communities. You're not going to get anywhere with this kind of bullshit. Yeah. Um, hey, Katie, I just want you to know that the blog post that I pulled up that Tara Mitchell wrote about the rates of recidivism, I emailed that blog post to him a week prior to our live stream. So he he may not have searched it out, but he had access to it. He's, he's not responding like a curious person. He's not responding like somebody who wants to learn more about you, how you stop abuse. He is responding like somebody who wants to be seen as an authority and has his answers rehearsed. And I'm out of control. And you yes, need to rein me in. I mean, nothing, nothing, the thing is nothing that you're saying is remotely controversial to people who know things about abuse. And, you know, I, I'm sh like, <laughs> he, he seems like a very nice old man, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And I, <laughs> but this is like, this is incredibly toxic. I mean, I just want to address like sur survivors, if you're watching this and you're feeling completely slimed by it, like, like that makes sense. So am I. 
this is not this is not how you this is not how you um stop abuse this is how you pay enough lip lip service that you can keep abuse managed within an abusive community that's that's what i see here it's it's the lip service that they pay to keep people that they see as the world the english people etc to prevent them like oh no they can handle themselves rather than subjecting them to the law and prosecution and this is part of why i say that prosecution is not persecution people well and the other thing is like he's not wrong that like as a society we have to figure out better ways of addressing sexual abuse than thinking like we can lock everybody who perpetrates it up and that will solve the problem like obviously like we need better solutions than we have because we all know that the vast majority of people who commit these kinds of offenses and crimes and violations of of humanity are not going to prison like we know that so what what i am tired of is hearing people who are a, you know who are apologists for particular religious formations i mean and I, I again i don't know all of his theology he strikes me like his entire affect his way of communicating like feels incredibly patriarchal to me um not to mention the substance of what he's saying like that as long as you're trying to dominate people in any in any way as long like because again i'm not getting curiosity from him about you or your experience or the information like like he did not want to talk about recidivism and the study that you presented him with he wanted to talk about it uh, a study from 1994 that was unpublished and not peer-reviewed. Like, if we are going to solve this problem as a society, we have to be curious about what causes these things. We can't, we can't sustain that curiosity if we are defending a particular power structure. Correct. I would absolutely agree with that. I <laughs> are are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. It's it's just it's maddening. And I like it feels it feels gaslighting because like the lip the lip service, the yes, it's terrible, it's a shameful thing, whatnot. It's like like that feels perfunctory. And like it the thing that it makes me feel is I should be grateful that he's saying these things. And it's like, no, I feel gaslit that he's saying these things because he's also like doing that thing that we're, you know, if, if you grow up in a, in a patriarchal church environment, regardless of denomination or sect, like you're familiar with this, it's the, it's the, I don't actually have to engage the substance of what you're sharing with me because I have all the answers. And yeah, I know you sent me that article, but I like, I didn't have time to read it in any way. Like I, it, that with the 
paternalizing well-intentioned. Yes, it's so terrible. It's so awful when church elders are the abusers. It's so awful. And it's like... <sighs> it's a little bit patronizing and... Um, yeah. To put it mildly. Yeah. yeah. Should we continue watching or... Um, why don't we break for some questions? This is a lot. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I want... I want people to have a chance to, okay. to ask what whatever questions they might have. If y'all have questions for Stephanie, here you go. This is your <laughs> chance. And if not, yeah. um, that's fine too. I mean. Okay. And like we can do another one where we break down the last half. We're stopped at like 29 minutes and 30 seconds. Um, yeah, I, I just, I'm, I'm a little, it, I, I didn't really know how to explain how I felt after doing that live stream because part of me felt like on one hand, like he says all the, oh, it's a shameful thing. Well, you know, you should mandatory, it should be mandatory to report stuff like that. But on the other hand, it's so terrible first question are you okay uh me yes stephanie are you okay <laughs> yeah i'm fine um and like it i'm fine but i'm also really angry and then there's the there's the part of me that's like because like men like this um i've been dealing with men like this my whole life most of us have and they make me so angry. And then I think, oh, well, your anger is the thing that's gonna, gonna make them dismiss you. And then I have to remind myself, Stephanie, whose opinion do you care about? Hey, Stephanie. You know, I mean, that's that, and that that is like one of the primary like orienting questions for for people who are working with survivors in any capacity. Like I could focus on like like flexing every bit of like academic <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, human that I have to like slaughter this, this guy and the arguments that he's making, but he's not worth it. Because what I really want to say is if you feel completely gaslit by this and you can't quite put your finger on why it feels so gross, it's like that's, that that's, yeah, I get it. It's gaslighting. It. It's gaslighting. It, yeah. Because it's, he was so dismissive to you. He like, he gave a sort of outward performance of perfunctory respect. But like, even some of the comments we're observing, like his body language was so, like, I think, I mean, I think you scare him. <laughs> but also just. I scare him. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I'm not that scary, Stephanie. <laughs> it, it, it is just, it's just rough to, like, I, I mean, there's, there's still part of me. I think I spent so many years um, trying to make uh, people who had legitimacy within Mennonite institutions you know, and mainstream Mennonites, 
Mennonite Church USA Mennonites are like, I, unlike unlike the Amish sectarian Anabaptists, like like love their institutions, um, and that's you know that is a that's become like a big feature of American Christianity. Even even like sort of like quasi sectarian groups like like Mennonites, Seventh Day Adventists, Church of Christ. Like these are pretty these are pretty small. Um, groups with sectarian roots and, and sectarian presence to some degree, but they love their institutions. And that's part of how like somebody like me, you know, my, my grandparents had eighth grade educations. I have a PhD. My dad has a PhD. It's partly because of Mennonite institutions that made a particular path to education acceptable. But one of the things that's really tricky is that like, <laughs> You know, I don't need Mennonite institutions for credibility anymore. And yet there is nothing like a man who speaks that language to just like make me feel gaslit and then angry that I feel gaslit and then worried that my anger is going to overshadow my expertise so that all people see is an angry woman. I mean, it's just like, like, it's all the things. <laughs> may I? Yeah. May I? Um, I'd yeah. really like to reassure you that it is okay to feel angry about all of this. Okay. I'm, I'm letting you know it is okay. It is valid. Sometimes anger is a very valid response. And for the people who don't see your anger as a response to like the being gaslit or feeling like you're being gaslit, um, they, they don't matter. Yeah, because you know what? At the end of the day, we've survived societies where anger was seen as a terrible thing, and so that's another part of where you're talking about and explaining how you're afraid that people will not listen because you're angry about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's true. You're so, so right. It's okay to be angry. And I'm going to say this. My therapist said it's okay to be angry. Mine, mine is too. <laughs> it's I'm going to let you know that. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Mary. You're welcome. And then we had another question that says, Stephanie, what do you have a PhD in? And was it from a Mennonite school? <laughs> uh, no, it wasn't from a Mennonite school. My PhD is from University of Kansas. Um, I also have a master's degree from Michigan State University. Um, and my PhD, mm. my PhD is, yeah, hitting all the classics. Um, <laughs> just, yeah, now let's not open that can of worms. <laughs> yeah. Um, my PhD is in American studies and American studies is a sort of interdisciplinary study of American culture with a real focus on um, the history of oppression and inequality. So um, conservatives hate it, but um, I also have a concentration in women, gender and sexuality studies and that I wrote my um, PhD dissertation on the LGBT justice movement in the Mennonite Church USA, um, sort of putting that in a larger cultural context. And I'm really, I'm honestly like one of the things that really motivated me to get a PhD was that 
I, I think that I always had a burning desire to understand how people who identified themselves as nonviolent, as like the primary tenet of their religion, how they managed to be so violent to each other. Like, oh my God, that you, I'm very motivated. You need to know that. I need to know that. Like, how can they justify that? Yeah. They say yeah. they're conscientious objectors. Like, how can they? Yeah. Yeah. That makes complete utter sense. Thank I you mean, for answering that. Oh, mine does too. <laughs> <laughs> We're, we're, we're here for you hurting brains and all. I'm so sorry things. your brain hurts. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Uh, the one who asked, Sarah had asked if you were okay. She says she totally gets it. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think the folks here, um, as a rule, like they generally have a lot of empathy and compassion and yeah, support. Tell. Which is where I hope you feel safe to come back in like maybe a week or so, or whenever you've decompressed enough from this half of it to finish watching the video. I would like to. I would yeah. like to finish watching it. Um, maybe I'll do yoga before <laughs> before the next one. <laughs> really chill <laughs> at the baseline. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's. I think it's probably good to take it in doses and um, yeah, yeah, it's a lot. Well, it's, it's a lot. And then it's a lot in like one sitting to have that continually come at you. Um, I, I gotta say like, after I did that live stream, I was not okay. Like the adrenaline rush that I got from being like massively triggered. Like mm -hmm. I went into like uh, this, this like you know the fight flight response mm -hmm. that's me that's me mm -hmm. at that evening so i can only imagine like me i was i was like well i wasn't even mennonite and and i see this and this is how i'm responding to this what, what's the big deal here oh, but, i mean it's i i think that um this you know, on the one hand, there's so many differences between different kinds of Anabaptist groups. Like, like, you know, I'm always reminded when I'm interacting with like people who have Amish and, and plain Mennonite background, I'm always reminded how little I understand the differences between all the different plain groups, because it's like, it's so like, it's so complicated. It's but, like an alphabet soup. Yeah. 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 Um, and, you know, I mean, I, there are a lot of ways in which I have much more in common with like the, like the Catholic survivors that I work with than I have with people who come from plain Anabaptist background, because, you know, I've like, you know, I, I didn't grow up in a separatist, you know, cult. <laughs> but what, what I will say is that you know, when you hear somebody like Harvey Yoder talking, I think the commonalities of of some Anabaptist experiences really pop through because like you and I may be triggered by different things within that, but um, there's, there is a sort of basic level of gaslighting that comes with being told we are a nonviolent people 
And also we're going to terrorize the shit out of you interpersonally. Right. Like, and that's like, when I feel like I'm struggling, <laughs> like I'm struggling to explain um, why I feel like being Mennonite was like traumatic. It's part like, it's, it's, it's partly that it's like, because I constantly had that. Well, you know, if only the world could be more like us go. And it's like, yeah, no, it's true. Catholics are generally less sectarian, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, that is, um, yeah, yeah I think there's still, there's still, um, I mean, I, Mary, I've talked to you about the, the former um, executive director of Mennonite Church USA, um, Irvin Stutzman, who uh, was Amish and grew up Amish. He's ex-Amish. And I, um, he, <laughs> like, I, I hope, I would hope you never hear him speak or meet him or have to have anything to do with him ever. But it's a, he's just another one of those people where I'm like, did you ever actually stop being Amish? And also, how did you become the executive director of the biggest Mennonite denomination in the world? Yeah. You know, and, and, and to the point that your Amish background is seen as something that makes you extra qualified for that position. Like, what is that? So, you know, it can be hard to identify what, what are the things that we actually do have in common, but there's, there's, there's stuff. <laughs> Yeah, and prejudice blanketed by education and religion feels worse. Yeah. yeah, I get that for sure. Yeah. I think it's it's just as traumatic. Freya's got words for y'all. I don't know if you heard that or not, but she's barking at me. So that's great. <laughs> <laughs> she knows. She knows what's going on. Um, Catholicism is a different flavor of religious guilt. Yeah. Um, well, did you know that Amish and Anabaptists are actually apostates of the Catholic Church, Lila? So if if you have time and energy to go look that up, they are absolutely descended from Catholicism at one point in time. Leno Simons uh, was a Catholic priest. I mean, just yeah. 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 Yep. See, I think for for me, like what I'm hearing you say, Stephanie, is that it was really traumatic to grow up in an environment where education is valued, but it's only valued when it can benefit the church or the religion in some form, shape or way. And yes. if it doesn't benefit that, then you're now cast out and you're now like I'm I've heard I don't think they do like the official like bond and mitung or like shunning like Amish do, but don't they do like excommunication and stuff like that? They set them no, aside. I mean, I've I've seen we 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 had a client go through that very recently. Is heard I mean whatever. I mean if you want if you want to see the details you can go to our website and look up the Rainbow Mennonite Church report and you will you will read a a very liberal, progressive, supposedly LGBT, LGBT affirming urban congregation do something that I think you'll find very recognizable as somebody who's been shunned. So formally, um, no, Mennonites would definitely deny or mainstream Mennonites would deny that they do that anymore. But um, 
you know, they, they have the, you know, even when there isn't anything as dramatic as this, as this excommunication that I just referred to uh, at Rainbow, right. I mean, there is, there are so many ways in which survivors are shunned. And one of the biggest things is just like, you stop being included in the social life of your church community and you are like, your presence induces silence and the things that you care about people, it's si silence is the biggest weapon, I think, that that mainstream Mennonites use to get rid of, get rid of inconvenient people. That's pretty terrible. Yeah, it's terrible. It's, it's terribly spiritually abusive. And um, it's not seen as violence, but it is felt as violence and it should be. It's yeah. I mean, I but that, that's, that's like, that's, that's again, another form of trauma that may look a little bit different in different types of communities, which is why I really appreciate you sharing all of the information that you have shared. Thank you for that. Um, but it can look very, it can vary widely. And there's a big distinction between Amish and Mennonites. And then you have like the Amish Mennonites and the beachy Amish and the, you know, mm -hmm. like it, it, there's a big distinction, but you know, if you want to educate yourself on those groups, like you should really be looking to those groups. And again, stop yeah. letting mid liberal Mennonites or other Mennonites even stop, stop talking for us. We mm -hmm. are perfectly capable of talking for ourselves. Yeah. And that's like, you know, if there's ever a point where, where Mennonite advocates, you know, who are within more Mennonite church USA traditions, watch this, like, I mean, my, as somebody who's more in your shoes, you know, my counsel would be like, talk, like, don't assume that you know, until you talk to plain survivors, like, don't, like, the same ethos that is operative with your other survivor, um, the other survivors you support is operative here, like, you don't tell their story. <laughs> don't get in their way. Look for ways to use like your own access and privilege. And give them choices. Yeah. And make sure you educate them. Yeah. But um, that's, that's just one of the biggest things is like, for me, it is, it is really, it has really been a thorn in my side because for you, I understand where you're coming from, but for me, it has really been a thorn in my side that you get these Mennonites speaking for Amish people. And then you get like Amish men who pretend they can speak for Amish women. No, you can't. Those Amish men came from a place of privilege. And let me tell you what that place of privilege is steeped in. They were born into the privilege that they are going to be a leader, the head of a household. They are above, from the moment they are born, they are above on the social ladder compared to their siblings that happen to be women or girls. They have never lived it. They have never experienced it. And they don't know what they're talking about. So they need to sit down and shh. Oops. I, I think this is why they call us disobedient, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, I think that's what it is. I think I should go get me a brandy old fashioned. 
What do you think? I I I think we I think we got to keep doing this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll let's come get, back. Yeah. We'll let's come, come back. back. We'll get we'll get through it. Um, Thank you all for for bearing with us in our rants. I I appreciate it. And thank you, Stephanie, for sharing. Thank you so much for having me on, Mary. It was a privilege. You're welcome. And we're going to do it again. Yeah. Have a good night, everybody. This concludes today's episode of the Disobedient Women. I sure hope all of you held on to your hats and bonnets and your buggy seats and drank lots of water. And I certainly hope that we will see you again. I hope you all have a beautiful and wonderful day. It's time for that brandy old fashioned.